Good morning. Today our scripture reading is going to be from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Um, It's page 828 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that this morning you have brought us here into this service. May none of us make the mistake that we're in here on accident or by chance. And may none of us make the mistake that this is just another service. It's meaningless. It's just the beginning of a new week. But that you've made divine appointments here this morning for us to encounter you through your word And we ask that we would indeed recognize that. And as we open your word on our laps and look into it, we ask that you would implant a transforming word in us so you can sprout fruit in our lives as we leave here and we would be changed by your message. And we pray these things trusting in you, Jesus. Amen. I'll never remember being the third party in a two-man conversation that escalated and became an argument. And one of them started yelling at the other one. And the one guy said, you know, just stop yelling at me. Why do you have to yell all the time? You just, you're like berating me and just stop yelling. And the other guy said, well, that's just how I am. I can't change that. I think many of us as believers, we've come to Christ, made a few changes up front, got really excited up front, and over time settled into things that just define us. And we say, that's just how I am. That I can't change that. Now, God changed a few things up front, but these other things, I guess we'll just have to wait till we get to heaven for those things to be change that's too ingrained that's too much a part of me it's too much a part of my past too much a part of my upbringing it's in my dna it's genetic so we hear things like i have a hard time trusting people so i often fudge on the truth i can't help that i just don't trust people i'm prone to anger like my father i can't control my outbursts that's how my father was that's how his father was I hold, hey, I hold grudges. Sorry, that's how I was raised. 
I say foul things sometimes, but I can't help it. It just comes out. Something happens unexpected and it just comes out. So it's just a part of me. I think Jesus is concerned with that in his church today. The excuses that we make to protect the things that we're not willing to change. And the things that over time we've gotten used to, but God in his holiness has not gotten used to. The things that were abhorrent to you at one time and after falling over and over and over again, you just became used to that vice, but are still abhorrent to God. Jesus is concerned with changing those things in your life. So is is real change needed? Yes, that's what we talked about last week. But is real change possible? And the resounding answer in this week's message is yes. And to the Ephesians 4, we look to look at that answer. I mean, it's so many different passages we can use to talk about this biblical mark of a, of a healthy church conversion. What is conversion? What does it mean to, to go from death to life, to be a non-Christian and to become a Christian? What does that look like? And so we know it has to do with accepting the gospel, repenting, and believing in Christ, trusting Him as your Lord and Savior. We get that. But what does that look like in real life? Perfect attendance at church, different haircut, a different style of clothing. Is it giving 10% on a Sunday from your income before taxes? I mean, what does it look like when someone is converted and is owned by Christ? Was a slavery of sin is now a slave to righteousness. What does that look like? In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about this new life. And beginning in verse 17, he says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You know, stop there a second. Paul is not saying, stop acting like a Gentile, start acting like a Jew. That's not what he's saying. Because he's addressing this letter to Gentiles. So what he's saying is, stop acting like all those other Gentiles who don't know Christ, who don't know anything about this Messiah, who've rejected this message of a Messiah, and act like people who have accepted Christ and are changed people. So he describes what people are like who don't know Christ. He says there's futility of mind. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Can I just highlight one thing for a moment? They have become callous. You know what a callus is. You play guitar and at first, you're, ouch. And every time you've got to go down the fret and, and the steel strings are ripping at the skin on your tips of your finger. And you develop calluses over time. I love hearing recordings of acoustic songs and you can hear the player go, you hear their callus sliding up and down the steel strings. I like that. I don't like when they edit that out. I like to hear that. Uh, but that callus is built up over time and they, they don't feel the way they used to feel. And so he's saying, Gentiles are like that. They, you know, at one time in the 50s, 
an actress in a movie showed a little skirt and you go, whoa, what is that actress? Some kind of like prostitute or something? And then fast forward to today and you've got to throw in a full sex scene if you want ratings. And so there's a callousness, there's a desensitivity to the things that at one time made you feel, made you take you back. And he's saying, but don't you be like that. Don't you start walking with Christ and, and be callous like those who don't feel, who are alienated from the life of God. And what is the life that you're supposed to live? It says in verse, uh, verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So when he says, you're different from them because you learned Christ. He's not saying because you went to seminary and took Christ 401. He's saying you learned Christ because you understood what he did for you. You believed it. You know, Jesus said, come, I'll give you rest. Learn from me. And so it's not an academic thing. It's, it's a life learning. You understand who Christ is. You've come to that knowledge. You've come to that understanding. You've learned what he did for you and you've come to that then you experience this life change where you put off your old self and you put on a new self. And I think this understanding of conversion is, is a clear instance. It's a clear understanding that you have learned Christ. He's saying, I'm assuming that you heard about him, verse 21, that you were taught in him. And as a result of that, you're, you put off the old and put on the new. So, these believers in Ephesus shouldn't be looking around and go, wait a minute, did I learn Christ? Did you learn Christ? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I think a lot of Christians sometimes today are dubious as to whether they're saved. No wonder why there's no power for living. We're not even sure what it means to be converted. So of course you're going to struggle with things and become callous to things because you don't understand what conversion really means. A couple of years, a few years ago, time flies, several years ago, uh, a professor uh, was had us in a class and you know, had a student sit in a circle because that's the cool thing to do now. And we all sat in a circle and he kind of led us in a discussion. And he began to lead us in a discussion about you know, kind of questioning our salvation. He said, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I ask my wife, am I, am I saved? I mean, am I? And I understand where he was trying to go with that. Um, that there should be this humility, there should be this awe, this fear of God. But as he began to explain this sort of paranoia, am I really say every once in a while we should ask ourselves that question, he was saying. We should ask ourselves, am I really saved? And what do you guys think? And so some of the other students began to weigh in, and one of the students who had come from a Catholic church, a Catholic background, he said, you know, that's one of the things I miss about Catholicism is they didn't presume to be saved. I mean, there's this constant sort of you're not really sure and that, that should, we should, God wants to keep us there. And I'm, I'm going, are you serious? That's exactly why you left the Catholic faith, is it not? That we don't have to go from confession time to confession time wondering if I'm saved or if I'm in. Am I in purgatory or am I in heaven? Am I saved or am I not saved? 
My, my mother, when, when she passed away, she confessed Christ, but she didn't really do enough things to counteract the things that she did before confessing Christ. Is she in? Is she out? I'm not sure. I mean, isn't that true that one of the things that was protested in the Protestant faith was this idea that we're saved by faith alone and in Christ alone. And it's only by Christ's merit that I'm saved. And so if I believe that Christ did what he did on the cross and believe that that paid for my sin, I don't walk around wondering if it's paid for. I know it's paid for. And it's not presumptuous because I don't come to God and say, hey, I did right. And I go, the only thing I have to say is Jesus. And he goes, you're right, you're covered because of what my son did for you. That's not presumptuous. But for us to doubt our salvation is to doubt what Jesus did. I mean, it can't be that difficult. You either learn Christ or you don't. You understand what he did. You believe that. You repent and come to the saving knowledge of him. Or you reject him and say, I understand what he did, but I don't want that. I don't want to repent. Or I'd be willing to repent, but, you know, I just, not now. And so Paul is assuming that there's a clear knowledge of you're either in or you're out. You're saved or you're not. If you are saved, if you have been converted, the effect of it is powerful. If you've learned Christ, here's what it looks like. In verse 20, he says, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self or the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To put that off, to take that off. And then to also do something else. Verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the new man, the new person created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul wants to make clear that you understand that you're saved and that there's a direct effect from that. And before I move on, I just want to encourage you. If you're in here this morning and you're not sure whether you're in or you're out, before we talk about the effect of that, you need to be sure. There's no other question that's more important than that. So when John wrote his epistles, he said, I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. And Paul told us in Romans that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not a game. God's not trying to trick you. And Paul wasn't writing originally when he wrote that. He didn't make that up. He was quoting Joel when he wrote it. And so it's replete throughout Scripture that God makes it clear what it takes to be saved, to become a Christian. And once you do that and take that step, verse 24 is the apex of this passage. It's putting off the old person and then to put on this new self created after the likeness of God. This new person that you put on is is created after the likeness of God. So he's not saying put on the new person that looks like Paul. Put on a new person that looks like your local pastor. Put on a person that looks like God. I'm not your standard. God is your standard. And then we push after that in the new resurrected life and the and the, and the after after conversion and you've given your life to the Lord. That's what you that's your model is Christ. It's God Himself, the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the Bible is clear that a life that is saved is marked by life change. 
If someone claims to be a Christian but is unloving, is unrepentant about sin, is not growing in the Lord, isn't bearing any fruit, guess what? They're deceiving themselves. And so there's this radical transformation that follows from knowing Christ. You know, when you grow dissatisfied with your cell phone because it doesn't have a good signal usually and it, it, the battery life is poor and it dies really fast and some of the buttons don't work and it doesn't sync well to your computer and you can list a bunch of things that really dissatisfy you about your phone then this new phone comes out that says it's super strong signal battery lasts for 20 years and without charging and it syncs to any computer you can think of and it's got all these gadgets and things and it's super slim and disappears in your pocket and all kinds of things When you get that new phone, there's a very simple but significant change that you need to make. You don't open the phone out of the new box and just start talking on the phone. You have to open up the backs, take out the SIM card, put the SIM card in the new phone, put the back on it, and there's your new phone. When God makes this switch in your life and when you become converted, you don't lose you. You don't literally become a different person. Lucas doesn't become John. You're, you're still you. Well, the passage that Erwin quoted us earlier when Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. No, he said, it's not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we don't lose our identity. But our identity is placed in something else. We shed this old nature, this old creation that we were operating under, that didn't work, that was calloused and deceitful, and we're put into this new creation. And we suddenly have power over the things that we were previously powerless against. And so, the new nature is a nature that is free from the slavery of sin. That does not mean that once you know Christ, you never sin again. But it means you're free from the slavery of it. So believers who come and tell me, you know, it's the same thing, it's the same thing, I just can't shake it, I can't, you can't, it's impossible. And then after a while, you just give up on it. That is not what Christ wants from your life. It's for you to say, you know, there's two or three things that are just not going to change. Well, if they displease Christ, they need to change. And they can be changed. Notice who makes that creation in verse 24. You put on a new self. Okay, you put it on. You make that. You put that SIM card in the next thing by faith. But you didn't create that new phone. He says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And that, that, that new self is created by God. God makes that. God is in charge of those changes. God makes all things new. Not you. You surrender to God in repentance and faith. God makes the change. He creates that new housing that you're in. That new person that you put on. Those new clothes that you wear. Your new walk is created by God. He's not saying come to Christ and fix all your problems. Come to Christ and recognize that He can fix those things that previously you were powerless to fix. So for Christians to say, I know Christ, I'm under Him, I know Him, I'm in a relationship with Him, but there's just a few things that I can't change, is contra-gospel. 
Paul saying conversion doesn't just mean a one-time change and whatever else didn't change is just a remainder that will have to be changed some other time. But there's a continual renewal of your mind. And so when you say I can't change, you're saying I can't create a new self. And Paul's saying you're right, but God can. And so you put on that new self through repentance and through belief And part of that belief is understanding, God, you are now not just my Savior, but my Lord. And you have the power to make me into the person you want me to be. That's why we sing those songs like, bend me, make me, mold me, break me, shape me, craft me into the person you want. I can't craft myself. But you surrender to the potter and allow him to shape you. And some things will be difficult, some things will hurt, and some things will be a really difficult process. But you trust that God has the power to change you. And you don't give up on that. So, like Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10 of this book, he says, we are, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. When somebody tells me, I, I can't change that, you know why I don't buy that? Because if they're in Christ, then Christ is in charge of the workmanship, not the person. And so I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I can't change these things. If you come up to me and say, I'm German, I can't change that, I go, you're right. You know, If you say, I'm, I'm tall, and aside from amputation, I, I can't change the fact that I'm the height that I am. Okay, you're right. If you come up to me and say, there's something in my life that displeases God, and it's just not changeable. No, you're wrong. I don't care what it is. Because the workmanship is something that God is in charge of. And you're telling me that God doesn't have the power to change this thing in your life that He wants changed. Yes, it can be changed. And yes, God wants it to be changed. Well, didn't Paul have a thorn in his flesh? Yeah, that was a physical ailment. Some scholars say, well, the the thorn in his flesh was, uh, you know, some kind of sin, like uh, homosexuality or something. Like, how does that make any sense in the rest of the passage? I want you to have this thorn so I can give you my grace. He's not trying to tempt Paul into sin so that Paul can come for more grace. He just doesn't want Paul to be arrogant. And so he's giving him a physical thing. But God's desire is never to tempt us. Nor can God be tempted by anyone. And so God doesn't lead us into sin. God doesn't make us sin. He wants us to grow. He wants us to shed the old self. And to live in what? Verse 24, in true righteousness and holiness. And I think some of us who maybe grew up with a lot of legalism, grew up with a lot of um, pastors and elders and parents who walked around with the white gloves and kept checking the dust in your life and rebuked, on, rebuked you on, on every kind of sin and you felt so oppressed by that that you swung to the other end of the spectrum and you love to talk about God's grace and you love to talk about freedom and you love to talk about how loving Jesus is and everything, but you forgot holiness. And conversion pursues holiness. And so it's not just what you and I define as loving, but that there's a very real sense in which God draws a line and says, this is wrong. This displeases me. And it's not okay for you to do those things. And he gives us the power to do something about it by giving us this new creation and promising to be the person who is in charge of the workmanship. And so an idea kind of surfaces from this passage that there's 
a one-time instant change. There's also a progressive change. There's a sense in which a person who becomes a Christian is changed immediately, but there's also eventual and gradual change that we continue to work out. And we know that because when he says that you learned Christ, he's not saying you're learning Christ. He's assuming that you've heard about him, you were taught in him to put off the old self and put on the new self. That's a one-time thing. Every morning I wake up, I don't go, i got to take off the old self today. No, the old self is dead. The old self has been crucified. How do I know I'm saved? Because that old person that was damned to hell is gone. And so I don't keep putting on a new self. I've been in churches before where they have altar calls every service, and sometimes you see the same people come up for the same things over and over again to be saved. Come up to be saved, and you see Sally come up, and then next week, come up to be saved, and you see Sally come up. And then a couple weeks later, come up if you want to receive Christ. And Sally comes up. Hey, somebody needs to talk to this lady. And it's either she keeps doing disingenuous prayers or she doesn't recognize that it's a one-time deal. You put off the old self, you put on this new creation. One time. Faith in Christ. You don't keep losing that every time you get cut off and you slip out a cuss word. Oh my goodness. Pastor, when's the next altar call? You put off the old, you put on the new. That's faith in Christ. But there's also a process, and we get that hinted at when he says, um, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And we know from Romans 12, too, that this is, this is a, a, a worshipful process. We come before him as sacrifices, living sacrifices, allow him to continually renew us. In verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 3, Paul says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self, past tense, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's this transformation that takes place once that switch is done, there's a continual renewing and a continual transforming effect where God continues to chip away the things that still resemble the old self. I hope that's clear because that's an important distinction to make. Some preachers of old would have preached that, and some today still would preach that once you become a Christian, you have to be perfect and that you should not sin. That's not the biblical picture. When we move to the other end of the spectrum and say, I became a Christian and there's some things that I was able to take care of, like smoking and drinking, but there's other things I can't take care of, like bursting out in anger. What are you going to do? Well, God wants to do something. So Paul is saying, I trust that you've made the switch. Now live like it. You know, this week, I've had my new cell phone for a while now, but this week I learned new things to do that I, I didn't know it could do some of the things that I'm doing with it now. And so that doesn't mean I didn't have this phone a couple of weeks ago. I had that phone, and it had those capabilities. But I'm learning because I'm not a very tech-savvy guy. I'm learning as I go along. Oh, I, I could do this. Oh, I didn't know if I did this, this would have popped up. Now I start complaining about my phone. Oh, there's, it just doesn't do this and that. And I don't get it. Tina's like, let me see. She looks at it. She goes on the computer. 
download this new software. I'm like, well, how much does it cost? It's free. Oh, okay. Download it, sync it, voila. It does this, it does that, it does this. Oh, well, thank you very much. I had no idea that was available to me. I might have had an inkling, but I thought that's, that's a lot of work. I got to go in there, Google, and I'm not a very techie guy. It'll take a long time for me to figure out, oh, this, download this, and wait, would that work on my Mac, or is that for PCs? And would it, I can't shut down my Mac, you know, and, and all these different things. And some of you are going, yeah, <laughs> that's who I am. And some of you are going, what an idiot. That's so easy. That's the point. Some people come to Christ, and it, it's just a little bit easier. I mean, they get it. And some people come to Christ, and they go, I... I'm struggling. I don't, I don't see how I can conquer this. But the same power is available to every Christian. The same power is available to every believer. And sometimes it will take you a couple weeks, a couple years, a couple months or something. But we need to start with square one. And that is that God has the power to take this over in my life. And I dare not consign it to genetics. That's how my dad did it. That's how I was brought up. This is too difficult to deal with. Let me just stick it in a closet somewhere and wait till heaven. No. That will not do. So Paul's saying, you've made the switch. Now you need to live like it. So he moves into that next section, verse starting in verse 25. I just want to read it through if you follow along with me. It says, therefore, because you've made the switch... And because you've been converted, what does conversion look like? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the person says, well, you know, I, I, I don't trust people, so sometimes I fudge the truth and I, I lie. And I don't care if you trust people or not, he's saying. It's not based on what your preferences are. You put away falsehood because falsehood has nothing to do with the likeness, the righteousness, the holiness of God. So you put away falsehood. And you tell the truth. Verse 26 speaks to those of us who feel like outbursts of anger are just we're wired for it. And what are we going to do about it? Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Maybe you were taught to hold grudges. But now that you're learning Christ, you do not hold grudges. You change that. That needs to be changed in your life. So he says, give no opportunity to the devil. It's not a game. This is spiritual warfare. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with, his, with anyone in need. The thief becomes someone, ironically, who shares with everyone. And when people look at the transformation in his life, they go, there's no way this guy would have ever been pegged as someone that shares with people. He's a thief. He couldn't help it. He just steals stuff. But that's how deeply God can transform someone's life. Where you now excel in the opposite thing that you used to be enslaved to. Let no corrupting talk come out of your, your mouths. Well, what if someone cuts me off on the highway? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But what if everyone in my house speaks that way? Let no corrupt. I mean, this is a life change. He's not saying depending on your culture, depending on your house, depending on your upbringing. He's saying let this be a change that's from the inside out, and everyone around you will marvel and go, how did that happen? A 12-step program? No. Jesus Christ. A new creation. 
God took the SIM card out of that old piece of junk and put it in Jesus Christ. And I'm owned by him now. And then he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, transformation. Someone with corrupting talk transforms into someone with uplifting encouragement. And then verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He lists a few more examples, which I'll read, and then I'll come back to verse 30. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. What about the people that are impossible to forgive? Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Was that impossible? Yes. So you don't withhold forgiveness from anyone either. But I think verse 30 is sort of the, for the people who like to wiggle out of situations. You know, you tell your kids, um, you know, clean up your room, but a couple of their toys are spilled out into the hallway. But they draw the line where the room is, and they clean up the room, and there's a couple of toys in the hallway. You go, hey, clean up. You said your room, you know. And now they understand how to communicate, and now they kind of, you know, they debate, and you go, and she's going to be a lawyer or something like that. You know the conversations. We don't do that with God. And with Paul, he's saying, now, I've listed all these sins, but people inevitably are going to go, well, I don't slander. I don't have corruptive talk. My problem is fill in the blank. And he doesn't clearly mention that here. Yeah, but does it grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Now, I grant you that that sometimes goes into a gray area. Now, I have Christian friends come over with a movie and they say, hey, let's watch this movie. And I check the rating on the back and I go, no, thanks. Why? Well, because I think God doesn't want me to watch people have sex on a screen. I think that. Can I point to a verse? Not specifically. And so are they Christian or not a Christian? Because they watch movies with that? I wouldn't say that they lost their salvation or that they're not truly saved because they don't draw the line there. But I think just because there are areas that we may disagree, just because there are some things that look gray and we have to depend on the wisdom of God, I think we have to move away from the math and the black and white aspect of Christianity and allow ourselves to emotionally sense the affections of the Holy Spirit. As I, in my quiet times and in my reading and in my prayer, I develop a sensitivity to the Spirit, I will sense when something is not right and I feel like God is grieving in me and I'm sensing that grief. And so if it grieves God to see something on a screen... I want to sense that grief. I don't want to be callous. If something that I see at work or something that I see at school or something that I see in my family grieves God, I want to sense that grief. Even if it doesn't directly violate Leviticus 30 verse 1, I want to sense that God is grieved by something so I can move with Him and allow Him to craft me into the person He wants me to be in true righteousness and holiness. And if something is questionable to say, you know what, I'm not sure about that. And err on the side of not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So I think it's a broader category. How does one grieve the Spirit of God? By failing to live up to verse 24. That new self is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So anything that is not like God grieves God. 
So Paul, I think, is making the argument that anything that doesn't conform to the likeness of God is in need of change. Therefore, everything that grieves God about you is changeable. You're not stuck with it. You're not, you're not, it's not a ball and chain you have to drag into heaven with you. It's, it's changeable. If God says change, this can be changed, He can change it. And it's not okay for us to just get used to that. I talked to a young man recently who would mutilate himself. Thought of suicide often. And his particular thought was to walk into traffic. He came to me and talked to me about a relationship that he was in with a verbally abusive girlfriend. He talked to me about his problem with the girl. But I gave him a speech about his problem with life. He told me that he knew Christ and he's a Christian, but here are his problems. He said he was on a bunch of medication. And I told him, I'm not qualified to speak to that. I can't write prescriptions. I can't, I can't tell you a prescription shouldn't have been written. So let's put that aside for a second. I know for a fact that God doesn't want you mutilating yourself, wanting to kill yourself, and be obsessed with a girl that verbally abused you. I know God doesn't want that for you. I don't think there's any mistake that the... And the Gerasenes, the man who was possessed by a legion of demons, would bruise himself with stones. I mean, it's demonic. And so here's an example of a person who understands that adultery is wrong, who understands that cussing is wrong, who understands that doing drugs is wrong, and doesn't really struggle with any of those things. But has a much deeper struggle And he takes it to secular psychologists and they go, I don't know, sounds like your brain is messed up. Take these meds. And what should we say if he takes it to the church? I'm sorry, I guess I'll pray for you. Ooh, I have no idea what that's like. I guess that's something that's just, I don't know if that can really change. Or do we say, I don't know what that feels like to want to cut yourself or bruise yourself. But I know what God promises in Scripture. And that is of the old self. That is not the new self. You need to take that to God and say, God, this is still dragging me down. I need you to remove this from me. Carve this out. And I believe that God will do it in your life. Maybe you don't mutilate yourself, but you have things in the closet. You have things that you struggle with. You have bitterness against someone that is impossible to forgive. You'd rather struggle with suicidal thoughts That sounds easier than forgiving this person that traumatized you. God is saying, I can take you out of that. And when I put you into this new thing, I continue to renew your mind, renew your spirit, and transform you, work on you, and make you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Would Jesus Christ be able to forgive that person? Would Jesus Christ mutilate himself? Would Jesus Christ think about walking into traffic? Would Jesus Christ wake up every day hating life? No. And so if God wants to make you into the image of Christ and you say, but not for me, you're saying God can't do that in my life. But the Bible says, yes, indeed, he wants to do it. Indeed, he can do it and he will do it. What does it take? Well, what did we talk about last week? Repentance and faith. 
You come to God, you say, I know I can't do it. I know I can't handle these things. And I need you to change it. I think our main problem is not that we don't believe that it can be changed. I think our problem is owning up to the fact that we need the change and that we need Christ to do it. The converted life is a life of change, becoming more like Christ and learning the power of that new nature. Remember those two guys arguing in front of me and one of them was yelling and the other one was, hey, stop yelling. And So I can't change that. And he looked at me. Right, Lucas? <laughs> I hate being brought into arguments. I'm like, can we just go eat lunch? I don't know if what I said is right or if I should have said it in a different way, but I responded, you can't change you, but Christ can. He goes, oh, thanks. And then walked away. Not what he wanted to hear. What did he want me to say? Yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah, what are you going to do? Hey, leave him alone, that's how he is. In fact, why don't you punch him in the face and tell him you can't, and that's you. <laughs> if you remember nothing else out of everything I said this morning, just remember these words. No necessary change is impossible in Christ. I'm not talking about changing your hair color, changing your eye color, changing how you look, changing what your skill set is, changing who your parents were. Those things can't be changed. Those things don't need to be changed. But no necessary change is impossible in Christ. I want to ask the elders to come forward so we can have just a couple of moments of prayer. And if Mike can come and play softly on the piano, I just want to have a couple of minutes before we leave here. Um, I don't want anyone leaving here without the opportunity to take something to the elders of the church. And I don't want to wait till the first Friday of a month to do it. I don't want to wait till we can grab lunch on a Tuesday. Now's the time. And you can come and share with us a burden. Uh, you can come and share with us something that you feel like is a vice that you, it, it's of the old person, but you've come to the Lord. And you can come forward if you've never come to Christ. And say, you know what, I've been here for a few weeks, or I've been here for a few years, before you got here, Lucas, maybe, but I never really converted. And the SIM card of my soul is still stuck in the old piece of junk. I need out. And you can come and take that to us as well. So while we play the last song and everyone's worshiping together, I want to extend an invitation for those of you who'd like to come forward for prayer uh, in any of those things.